0: I remember the first time I read a comic that ended with the words to be continued. It was 1990, I was six years old, and the comic, this probably explains a lot about me, was DuckTales number 1. Penciled by Cosme Quiteri, and written, somehow, by none other than Marv Wolfman, it introduced me to the idea of seriality in comics, and I was instantly on board for an epic long-form adventure starring the characters I knew from my Saturday morning cartoons. DuckTales number 1 was a comic book adaptation of a TV cartoon adaptation of a comic book character who had debuted over 40 years ago. The cycle of media renewal was clearly aimed at drawing in a larger share of the new generation, and it worked. For one reader at least. Uh, This is Michael Hancock. Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, a podcast that puts certain comics and certain critics into conversation. With me are my co-hosts. On my left...
1: I am Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock
0: University. And on my right...
2: I am Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University.
0: Today, we are not here to talk about DuckTales and Scrooge McDuck. If you would like to hear us talk about <laughs> Scrooge McDuck, please check out episode 17. Rather, today we are here to discuss comic book adaptations of established media franchises through an examination of Russell and Pugh's The Flintstones and Scully and Barber's Transformers versus G.I. Joe. Let's start our Transmedia Engines. Andrew, could you tell us about Transformers vs. G.I. Joe?
2: Transformers vs. G.I. Joe Volume 1 is a comic book, question mark, series by Tom Scioli and John Barber, published in 2014 by IDW. The story chronicles a chance encounter between the two iconic franchises that leads, through a series of misunderstandings, to a full-scale war between Joes and Transformers on both Earth and the Transformers' homeworld of Cybertron. Scioli and Barbara play fast and loose with these two beloved intellectual properties, and I include myself in that beloved. I was raised on these. Characters are at times wildly inconsistent with their original counterparts, and even iconic narrative pieces, such as the origin of Snake Eye's disfigurement, are completely rewritten to suit the ends of this series. This should be a complaint, but one of the charms of the series is the visceral, sandbox-like nature of the story itself. Shelly and Barber aren't honoring storied franchises with a by-the-numbers, nostalgia-heavy, sacrosanct portrayal such as a lot of recent film revisitations of other storied franchises. I'm looking at Star Wars here. These guys are just mashing their action figures together, and therein lies the charm of the series, which IGN describes as, quote, the visual embodiment of the pure, uncensored imagination of a hyperactive eight-year-old playing with its toys, end quote. The story is, well, nonsense, if we're being perfectly honest, but certainly no more so than recent film adaptations of either franchise so that very low bar is easily met or even surpassed. The artwork is the star here, and Shioli, best known as a Jack Kirby devotee, just absolutely litters every page and panel with a frenzied spectacle of Kirby-esque action, to the extent that I was reminded more of the doodles in my high school notebooks than of any particular comic creation. In truth, I found the experience of reading this book quite jarring, But in accepting that this wasn't going to be the typical comics reading experience or the typical experience of these intellectual properties, in accepting the wild ride for its own sake, I found a lot to admire here, and I'm excited to talk about it today, though a little concerned about how three academics can make conversational fodder out of such a visceral text.
0: Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, I appreciate the knowledge, and after all, knowing is half the battle. (laughs) Anna, could you tell us about the postmodern Stone Age family? (laughs)
1: I'll try. So, The Flintstones, written by Mark Russell with art by Steve Pugh, is a 12 issue comic book series originally published in 2016 based on the titular Hanna Barbera animated classic. It was a critically lauded series, nominated for two Eisner Awards, including Best Limited Series and Best Humor Publication, as well as a Harvey Award for Book of the Year. Didn't win any of them, but getting nominated is after the battle, as we say. Um, When I say this comic book is based on the original Flintstones cartoons, I mean that in a relatively generous sense. This comic book isn't set in the regular continuity or standard format or whatever we want to call it of the Flintstones animated series. The original Flintstones, which premiered in 1961, was basically an animated version of the classic live-action sitcom The Honeymooners, set in an imaginary Stone Age setting that mimics 1950s suburbia. Much of the humour from the original series comes from gags that remake modern life in Stone Age garb. Most of us are presumably familiar with the basic nature of these gags, but just in case you aren't, think ideal suburban housing developments made out of rocks, mammoths as garden hoses, dinosaurs as construction cranes, cars made out of stone and wood run on foot power, bowling balls made out of armadillos, etc. etc. That last one's a little bit confusing because you'd think that they could just use actual rocks for bowling balls, which they have plenty of, but um, the logic of this world is not consistent. This was never a world that depended on logic and more on the needs of the gag at hand. The original Flintstones was in its own way a type of satire of modern life. It was the first animated cartoon to air in prime time and was intended to appeal to both adults and children. Children are meant to appreciate the slapstick of the gags, adults are meant to see the hint of satire encapsulated by the basic joke of modern life perhaps not being so modern after all. Russell and Pugh's Flintstones takes up this basic premise but significantly in. Increases, I would say, the bite and sophistication of the satire. In this comic, Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble are still members of the loyal Order of Water Buffalo's Lodge, but now it's a veteran society, offering mental health support to soldiers who participated in a genocide against the tree people, who were eradicated to make way for the town of Bedrock. Fred's famous yabba-dabba-doo catchphrase becomes an anger management mantra imparted by a mental health counsellor. We see the psychological pain suffered by the many animals who are exploited within the Flintstones' home, including the aforementioned bowling ball and his friend, a pink elephant confined to the closet known only as vacuum cleaner. We also get parables about gay marriage and the dangers of political strongmen. This description might make it seem like this comic has very little in common with the original Flintstones, but perhaps what's most clever about the series is how much it does feel like the original Flintstones. Russell and Pugh's comic is less an angry takedown of its source material than an expansion of it. If anything, I found the versions of the characters in this comic far more likable and sympathetic and compelling than the ones in the original cartoon. That I'm calling these characters likable and sympathetic tells you something about the very unusual and very complicated tone of the series. The effectiveness of its satire often extends from the humanization of this world's originally fairly one-dimensional, I think it's safe to say, characters. The comics depictions of labor, exploitation, and genocide land harder when we actually care about the people involved. It's also a very darkly funny series. It does a great job of finding comedy within tragedy and vice versa. All in all, it's a fun and fascinating read, and I look forward to unpacking its satiric or farcical or parodic elements with you guys today.
0: let's start with a bit of context, both uh, historically and personally. Uh, What is your familiarity with the franchises involved here, and what what kind of relevance do you think they have?
2: The death of Optimus Prime wounded me as a child, and I firmly believe that the G.I. Joe movie was a good movie until revisiting it as an adult Um, I I was all in on both of these franchises I was their target demographic yeah I think when I was eight years old I wanted to take a vow of silence so I could be like Snake Eyes (laughs) so yeah I need to
1: see a picture of you from that age to really picture that in my mind I can't picture it hopefully dressed as in a ninja outfit preferably I'm sure it happened totally
2: sure it happened. I had a lot of these toys, I had a lot of these toys, I had a lot of these comics. Um, as a comic scholar, though, I will say I have a lot of fondness for um, Larry Hama's work uh, on the original G.I. Joe series. I know it's very well Which regarded, I mean,
1: I'm aware of that as well, despite not really having that connection.
0: Yeah, I have literally no experience with either of them. I what? saw a lot of Transformers Beast Wars because my younger brothers were very into it. And my middle brother owned the G.I. Joe Battle Fortress which I always offered as Exhibit A that he got all the cool presents at Christmas.
1: Yeah, I had no growing-up experience with either of these, uh, very little adult experience. Uh, my mother would never have let me watch either of these shows, um, mostly because of the violence, although I'll, I'll be clear, she's like a hippie, not a conservative. <laughs> she's just that she didn't believe in violence. <laughs> um, I was allowed to watch Ninja Turtles, I think, because she thought the fact that they were named after Renaissance painters to be very funny, that was she was like, that. there must be something better about that show because of that, and so she like let me watch that one. But yeah, I mean, with Flintstones, certainly, I saw growing up, I've always hated it with a passion. I always, even when I was a young child, was very disturbed by the masculine aggression of Fred Flintstone. I found it upsetting, like, which I'm sure says something about my childhood or something. It's not that I had encounters with male violence or whatever, but I, like, even now, I watched a few clips of it, like, just to revisit it, and I, I found it intensely upsetting. And like, yeah, that was the main reason I hated that show. So this. Re- redo of it that really interrogates masculinity. I found
0: pleasing and interesting Well, I think it's it's interesting that each of us has out of these three properties one at least one that they are not familiar with at all mm-hmm. and yet there's a degree to which it's permeated the culture of oh, our yeah, youth. Sure. Yeah, each of these has come to Signify things, well, I mean, mean things beyond there. They're
1: both transmedia texts too. Like, I mean, even mm-hmm. if you never watched Flintstones, you probably at some point ate a Flintstones vitamin. And even if you were right. like not aware of GI Joe or Transformers, I mean, I was aware of
0: the toys growing up. Like, even though I didn't watch the shows. All right, so Flintstones kind of has this legacy of repeating the values of the '60s, more or less, in the gender dynamics and so forth. Is there, with still sticking to the originals, like what? Well, is there any sort of '80s resonance from the GI Joe and Transformer franchises then?
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big. T- I mean, even even just the costume design is very 1980s esque. Um, so th- there's a total throwback happening there. The the year models of the cars that we're imitating and stuff like that. Um, I I think were very firmly rooted in the 1980s and Shelley's work
0: all right um let's well there was
1: a, i mean we could get into so many things but i mean there was a tense thing going on in terms of the marketing of children's um mm-hmm. products in the 80s like a big gender dimorphism that was going on in terms of you know designing things for boys and designing things for girls and i've always thought of oh, both of these things kind of within that legacy as well although obviously girls watched everything boys watched everything too but there was and, definitely a siloing and
0: these franchises marked a big shift where this was a case where the the toys came first Yeah, uh, yeah. Show pro- the TV show properties came there after there
1: is so much I mean pop culture studies is kind of from the 80s as a field of study mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like when you read I sort of collect 80s pop mm-hmm. culture but I love them because they always have this wonderful 80s design too like I mean books from the 80s I have like quite a nice collection of them stuff about TV and pop culture um, but man the level of like hysterical panic among mm-hmm. academics about stuff like yeah. Transformers and G.I. Joe and He-Man like they thought it was the end of civilization they're like they are designing these things to market to our kids and they're based off of toys and just the fact that they were based off of toys is enough to make this the end of civilization Which is really interesting, because you you get it. I mean, like, I feel like the capitalist critiques are something that have really fallen off these days, which I actually find Mm. disturbing. You know, like, thinking the Lego movie is such a wonderful (laughs) creative experience. And I'm like, you get it, it's an ad, right? Like, and I actually get frustrated that that discourse has gone away, that we just accept this now, which actually is scary. And in that way, the pop culture critics of the Mm. 80s were right. But at the same time, like, the presumption that, you know, toys don't have meaning, therefore, the show can't have meaning, I mean, this Transformers GI Joe series like subverts that a lot, you know. Like I mean, in terms of, there is a meaning that we infuse these things with, that we inscribe mm-hmm. these things with. There is a creativity, there is an artistry. All of those things are present. So you know, I, I can see both sides of that.
2: And I think maybe it's just worth noting as well that that's an important development in the history of comics as well, mm-hmm. in terms of um, the business model. Yeah. Where for the longest time it was the business model as you're selling comics, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're selling ads, you're selling subscriptions. Um, then come the 1980s, the business model was you're selling action figures. That is your revenue stream. Uh, and uh, at this point today, it's, it's, it's mixed. Obviously, movies are in there uh, and a few other things as well. Um, but we're, I don't know, i entering an era where the thing that we study as comic scholars is subservient to another thing that you're selling. Uh, and I think even the G.I. Joe comics reflect that.
0: To shift to the comics at hand, in your opinion, are these successful adaptations? And for that matter, what is a successful adaptation in terms of comics in, in your estimate? Like, we could go with different examples or a definition if you've got one off the top of your
2: head. Okay, so let's go with the French school of adaptation theory, <laughs> um, which suggests that the thing that makes or breaks an adaptation is what's called the kernel. The idea that if you try to do it faithfully and get like all the little details right, you're going to break it because it's not appropriately adjusted to the medium that it's in. What matters is that the fundamental spirit of the thing is intact.
0: In, in the spirit of the comics we're reading, let's let's call it the spark in honor of the Transformers.
2: Sure, the all spark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in that case, I, I would say definitely not for the Flintstones, because I don't think it's doing what the Flintstones was about. For G.I. Joe Transformers, you might make a case that that juvenile action mosh pit is kind of what the older series were uh, about. What was
0: the original series about? Where do you see the difference
2: there? Well, the original series took itself incredibly seriously, uh, and yeah, I'm making a face. Michael was making a face. <laughs> so I you're talking
1: about Transformers.
2: Oh, I was talking GI Joe specifically.
0: Oh, I was, I was think, I was thinking Flintstones. Like, oh, I'm what, sorry. What was the like? You said that it's not successful in transforming that core. Yeah, no. I, so what is the core then?
2: Well, if we come back to what Anna was saying, I, I think Flintstones is largely a um, um satire of the nuclear family. Uh, low-key satire, one that embraces a lot of um 1950s, 1960s uh, um,
0: politically. So you don't see this as a satire of the family?
2: Of the family? No, not at all.
0: Really?
2: I see it as a satire of society.
0: Oh, but this is I don't so think much about the family's place in society.
2: Yeah, but I, I think it's society first. For, for me, the, the, the mission statement of the Flintstone comes out in the first issue, um, where the Neanderthals turn back and say, i think the purpose of society is getting other people to do your killing well it's
0: certainly true that there's no i'm casting my mind back to what i watched as a child um Mm -hmm. there is no real within the family conflict in this series The, the, the members of the family are all pretty like loving towards each other and that's as far as that goes it's If there's conflict, it comes with their relation with others.
2: Right, and their relation to the society in which they live and how that society takes advantage of them and uses them.
1: But, I mean, the relationship between, like consumerism and capitalism is, like, present in the original series. I mean, even though it's so? not a focus, it's present. I mean, I think
0: the fact that the animals are everywhere, the, yeah. the tool animals are everywhere in the original, like, at least implicitly yeah. puts that in it.
1: And then him working at the quarry, too, yeah. like, this blue-collar job, and, I mean, it just the, the the stuffness of their house, like, the 50s domestic stuffness of them, like, just having all of the appliances, mm-hmm. which, like, in their version is, like, hilarious. But you,
2: you mentioned before things. that you saw that as kind of a, a, a gag. Do you think... It's a gag that has a political commentary behind it in the original or is it just I think there's a
1: grain of political commentary just to give it to yeah. that adult appeal but I mean it doesn't go anywhere. I mean it's directionless.
2: So maybe it's we're like, talking about uh, yeah. the degree yeah. of focus yeah. between yeah. the family and society which would yeah. be fair.
1: Yeah like I mean yeah I mean it's funny because yeah I do I did see it as more of an extension than you do but mm. but I can see why you're making that argument yeah. too like I mean I, I think you could have either reading of the Russell Pugh series. And, I mean, again, my memory of original Flintstones is so fuzzy, too. It's mm-hmm. not like I remember specific things from the show or anything. And, I mean, certainly its depiction of gender just seemed totally different. And, again, that was the reason why I liked yeah. It, yeah. it. Yeah, to its credit, it's yeah. totally different. Yeah. Because, I mean, you just
0: couldn't... Like, the idea of Fred Flintstone mind. as a supportive husband. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's just totally <laughs> at a left field based on the original.
2: What's your take on the Transformers G.I. Joe?
1: I don't know that I have a definite opinion. I mean, I, I guess to the degree that these things have bled over and just become something that we feel like is part of our cultural consciousness. I felt the same way that you did that. I was like, this feels very much like those things. I mean, you know, I've watched episodes of those 80s cartoons on YouTube and stuff like as an adult. And you're just like, man, the like levels of just like insanity and like thing after thing. And you're like, it is kind of amazing. And it's like great for like, (laughs) you know, distracted kid consciousness and everything. And this seemed, I mean, your comment about, it seems like doodling on your binder in art class. Or something. That's definitely what came across well, to me from the series. And I, I think it
0: captures the sense of hey here's the new character yeah like over and over again right like the yeah. constant like let's toss a new one in and now this is exciting for a minute by this one we'll go now. to the next one and yeah yeah just through the, the constant re- recycling the relentlessness yeah. of yeah, yeah. Of
2: and characters get rolled out in waves with yeah. their own little binder attached to them yeah, just like you're yeah. buying the action figure
1: yeah and like a little like just one like not even a sentence three word synopsis of yes. who they are and like who they <laughs> are is usually just like a mustache, a gimmick, and maybe a weapon. Yeah. You
0: know, it. I mean, there's a certain scent. Well, we'll get to character later. <laughs>
2: that, that is ironic, though, right? Yeah. The, the way yes. he's, he's doing it is yeah. different from the severity and seriousness with which the originals were treated.
1: But then it... Well, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to this and talk about it more, but, like, I mean, the degree of lovingness, though, yeah. of, like, yeah. the Transformers. Is there any is.
0: contrast that comes to mind? Like, these are uh kind of tongue in cheek adaptations is there like a uh like really faithful but good ad- comic adaptation of a property that's kind of a go to for contrast
2: uh Jack Kirby's 2001 series comes to mind he sort of continued the series i mean he got a lot wrong i would say compared to the original but i mean he loved that world and just wanted to keep playing in it
1: i mean the batman 66 comic maybe like oh, yeah. alred uh-huh. Um,
0: that one's interesting because it's a tongue-in-cheek of a tongue-in-cheek
1: yeah I know there's a lot of layers there I mean there's been ones that I wanted to like there was like a Miami Vice comic where they just kind of went like all spectacle in excess like maybe like five years ago and I'm I'm spacing on who the creative team would have been with it but I read the first couple of issues, I'm a huge Miami Vice fan, I I read the first couple of issues and I was like really on board for that, like, you know, we're just gonna do the spectacle in excess and use comics to exaggerate that. But then, this is a funny complaint, but it's just that like, those kind of like excessive satires or however you wanna call it only work if you actually like get the characters right also. Uh, And like they're made of like the characters, like they did Crockett and Tubbs's boss Castillo as like this yelly guy and that's so out of character. That like I got angry and stopped. I couldn't read it anymore. So in my case, I guess it's an example of a bad adaptation that had potential to be good.
0: In my case, um, I can. I think the example I came across recently is that I gave my partner a copy of the comic book adaptation of Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, which I didn't know that existed. Yeah, I didn't. Know that yeah, that it works. It took a while. I've read it, and it takes a while to get into it. That like so much of that is the actors. But once but like halfway through, there's like this mental switch, and it's like, okay, this works. This is a universe that can be adapted to comic book form.
1: Do, do either of us are either of us like buffy fans? Do we read that?: oh, comic Yeah, anymore? I have read: Oh
0: yeah. I've read it season a nine. Point, yeah. Season nine. The, oh. the Angel and the short limited Angel and Faith series is like one of my favorite movie oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm not a buffy person, so I don't love Buffy. I'm I'm a
0: stalwart I hated Joss Whedon before it was cool (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the weird thing I love runs of the comic I have grown more and more sour about the original Mm -hmm. property
1: Mm -hmm. That's interesting
0: Alright, this uh, leads into my next question and uh, here is a partial list of comic book series published in January 2020 that are adaptations of franchises that started in other media uh, technically, Harley Quinn and Batman Beyond are both adaptations of properties that started on TV. Then there's Star Wars, G.I. Joe, Van Helsing vs. Dracula's Daughter, Ducktales, fares and Scares, Star Wars The Rise of Kylo Ren, Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers slash Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Conan the Serpent War, G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, My Little Pony, Friendship with Magic, Elvira, Mistress of Darkness, Firefly, Outlaw, Mal Reynolds, Stranger Things, Into the Fire, The Magicians, Genlock, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Zero Journey, Doctor Who The 13th Doctor Year 2 Robotech Remix Rivers of London The fan and the Furious Sonic the Hedgehog Go Go Power Rangers I mean I want He-Man, to interrupt you But now I'm
1: just interested <laughs> humans are masters in <laughs> the multi-universe
0: Buffy the Vampire Slayer slash Angel Colin Hellmouth Rick and Morty vs. Dungeons and Dragons 2 Painscape, Life is Strange, Dr. Jim Henson's Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, Aliens vs. Predator. Thicker Than Blood Dungeons and Dragons of Dark and Wish James Bond, Betty Page Unbound, Napoleon Dynamite Dragon Age, Blue Wraith, Glow vs. the Babyface Gears of War, High Busters. Disney's Frozen True Treasure Sherlock, A Scandal in Belgravia, Underdog and Pals Rocky and Bullwinkle as seen on TV Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Firefly American Gods, Colin, The Moment of the Storm, Steven Universe, Archie vs. Predator 2, Ghostbusters Year 1, Deja Thoris, Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror Season 2, Kingdom Hearts 3, Conan the Barbarian, Rick and Morty, Gogo Power Rangers, Star Wars Adventures, Transformers, and Star Trek Picard. Oh
1: my god, I'm kind of upset. Oh, sorry. Frankenstein
0: Undone, A Clash of Kings, and Kiss vs. Zombies.
1: I kind of hate that list. Um, Well, I mean, I have been interested in this kind of like, like it's not really a trend because it started, I mean, I'm I'm sort of working on a project on the television show Man from Uncle right now, which is, you know, one of the first really notable transmedia properties. And it had a line of comic books, you know, in the mid 60s. So, I mean, it's not like it's a new phenomenon, but at the same time, like the bringing back of so many like Uh older properties and stuff in comic book form. But I mean, also like, I mean, it's like, there's still novelizations of like TV shows and movies like happening now, but it's like this underground economy that you know, like the numbers must be well, really small. And you have to as, see to As you mentioned,
2: men.
0: uh, I looked up which one of those hit Diamond's top one hundred seller oh. list. So that list, well, probably Star Wars. Yep, Star Wars, the Harvey Quinn material, yeah. Power Rangers, and Ninja Turtles, Conan the Barbarian, and that's the end of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, it does seem to be more of a um, uh, just outside the mainstream strategy. Uh, yeah. Using familiar properties. I mean, yeah. I think this is something IDW has obviously made to well, know. I think- You can
0: also make the argument that these are diamond numbers, so I think the real market is not the direct market. Right. Oh,
1: yeah, well, that's true, too. Well, yeah, but, I mean, you know, there must be a market for, you know, just the ultra-niche fandom of, like, people are just going to buy a thing that relates to the thing that they like, and that's the market, right?
0: Just the sheer number suggests that a lot of the comic book industry is being uh, propped up by these adaptations. I
1: mean, the question I would ask is that, you know, like, I mean, I haven't obviously read all of those, um, or any of those possibly, um, but uh, but to what degree, you know, those texts have a freedom to do some of the things that the two texts we're looking at today yeah. do, right, which I think Transformers GI Joe could please you know, very sort of hardcore fans of that thing, I'm sure it did mm-hmm. please lots of them, mm-hmm. yeah. but at the same time people who want a continuation of that world or something that's just going to confirm their beliefs about the product might not sort of buy into it well Flintstones particularly though but Mm -hmm. I mean I don't know that there's this really hardcore uh, Flintstones like fans that are going to be upset about it. they still
0: make the show like they're still straight to whatever forms of Flintstones I think there was a Flintstones wrestling cartoon crossover a little while back yeah I mean I looked uh, this
1: up before the pod there's supposed to be a new animated like a new um, streaming the Flintstones
0: we will not live to see a time when the Flintstones are not being made into TV shows yeah (laughs) Uh, likewise with G.I. Joe and Transformers. Right.
1: But I mean, it's it would be an interesting thing to do, like, what is the nature of these texts? And, you know, like, what are they doing with the property? And what's the appeal? Because, I mean, I'm a fan. Like, I mentioned Man From U.N.C.L.E. I, like, have collected Man From U.N.C.L.E. novels just to, like, have them. Like, I just want them. Like yeah. And so I understand that aspect of fandom. I've never been, like, a real, like, item collector. I don't collect, like, toys or figures or anything. But like I've definitely like collected things in a capacity, and it's just the joy of having that thing that is another iteration of the thing that you like, mm-hmm. like another permutation of the thing that you like. And especially if it's something that is sort of a trans a, a transmedia thing or something that's got a large universe, or you know, because it's usually cult texts that are like this, right? Like texts that have these gaps that encourage you to fill in those gaps, and mm-hmm. so getting these ancillary, ancillary products that's a very <laughs> difficult word to say um, is part of that experience. And right? then generally
0: more obscure, rarer.
2: As an aside, we should point out that Anna just published a beautiful article about how writing about comics is a form of collecting comics Mm -hmm. that you should all look up on Vault of Culture.
1: (laughs) Subtitled, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Being in Love with (laughs) Nightcrawler. Why would I ever be ashamed of that? But anyway... (laughs)
0: How is the audience for these works different than the audience for the original franchises?
1: Yeah. Well, that it's to think... a niche audience, a fan audience rather than a mainstream audience would be my immediate thing. Though.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe.
1: I mean, one of the like, I don't know if this is like getting too off topic of your question, but I mean, it does make me think about the way that these properties are perhaps being treated differently than they were in like the late '90s and early 2000s with stuff like Harvey mm-hmm. Birdman and, and Space Ghost, which were more. There's, like, a lovingness to it now, like, that we Mm -hmm. flipped around from, like, kind of more... um, Although there's a lovingness to those two, I think. Like, I mean, you know, like, I love those shows so much,
0: but... I think, yeah, those are less about the nostalgia for the characters in this version, these versions are... Yeah,
1: these... Yeah, that's the... Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, there's more of a nostalgia factor here, which, like, I don't know. Which
0: is... Which makes the Flint... Or the Transformer G.I. Joe one really weird to read for someone like me, who, like... I am having nostalgia for characters I never saw as a kid.
1: Well, yeah, but that's how nostalgia... I mean, you know, like, I mean, you just talked about that thing I wrote about X-Men, and it's just like, I've got so much nostalgia for X-Men, and I talk about having nostalgia for, like, the 70s and 80s X-Men. I have nostalgia for reading 70s and 80s X-Men in, like, 2013. Like, (laughs) I mean, it makes no sense. I think in, like, the digital era where everything's kind of gotten flattened, the nature of nostalgia has become more complicated than even yeah. the smartest people have fully accounted for.
2: Well, I think maybe this leads to a good question Transformers versus G.I. Joe that I've been asking myself. Like, the logic of this would be that the original audience has aged. And you would almost therefore expect the a new Transformers G.I. Joe to do what the movies do, which is to take it way too seriously uh-huh. uh, and, and to try really, really hard to make it work in ways that it was never really made to work. Um, whereas what we have in this comic is more juvenile than the original in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, So I, I, I think well, that's
0: I mean, have you seen a G.I. Joe cartoon recently?
2: Maybe like, yeah, not video. too long ago
0: <laughs> I, I uh, although, the, No, I'm t- I'll take that back the original I'm thinking of the original like launching for two-hour thing of the G.I. Joe's and that was pretty intense for a cartoon of the era. <laughs>
2: But there's like a there's a degree of excess here mm-hmm. that I think mis- uses nostalgia in a different way. Yeah. It's not nostalgic for the particular characters and trying to age them up and make them serious. It's nostalgic for that experience of again this chaotic yes. sandbox-like yes. experience. I think that's maybe one of the major differences yeah. between Flintstones and yeah. Transformers: G. Joe. Yeah.
0: Well, I think I think it's relevant too that both of them have reputations for having the more serious runs of comics. Within memory, like the G.I. Joe has a much earlier one, but the particularly the Transformers more than meets the eye series was pretty recent to this, which is very well regarded for its establishment of getting into the history of the Transformers in almost like a Marxist way.
2: Character development, too. yeah, I'm
0: doing some interesting gender stuff, I hear.
1: Well, yeah, I love that thing that you're saying, though, because I mean, if it works, it gets back to your, your thing about nostalgia, Michael, because uh-huh. it's like almost like I think why it maybe works is because what it is, is it's nostalgia for being a child in the 80s. And you don't necessarily have to have consumed these specific texts, but it can just, even just be nostalgia for childhood in general. It's like the wild creativity, the like the not caring if things make sense, like... I don't know it's just all of those things I love those things I mean that's like why I love superhero comics right so I mean like it appealed to me a lot on that level I was just like yes I love that like just more things more things let's just like have more explosions and more stuff and it doesn't matter where people come from like the joys and the visceralness of the spectacle right and I, I did love that about it a lot yeah and I don't think it's negative necessarily. I think it's just like it's unbridled creativity in some ways, even though it's unbridled creativity, like within sort of the guise or the framework of this thing that's supposedly really formulaic. Right. But it's like a celebration of like what we do with that excess, that that excess can have a value.
2: Yeah, for sure. Instead of toning it down, they ramped it up.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, Andrew, in our conversations (laughs) over this text, uh, or over these texts, um, you specifically referred to Flintstones as a farce. Uh, What led you to that conceptualization?
2: I don't know. I'm not not good at these distinctions, but um, for me, farce is largely a tonal quality based around um, comedic misapprehensions uh, and a world that is um, often dismissive of its own sense of um, consequence which is where I would push back on my own declaration because the Flintstones does have some consequences. In it. Um, but it is a very kind of portrayed as like, like a happy-go-lucky, everything's going to work out, but everybody misunderstands their neighbor kind of thing um, with a little bit of a healthy sprinkling of social commentary. So for me, that's where I kind of read it as, as farcical in nature. I don't think we really feel that Fred's in any danger at any point or anything like that.
0: Well, I think there is like a certain just don't worry about it to a lot of the qualities like yeah. there's no way that the tvs and cell phones should be working
2: but yeah no, nobody's going to learn anything do you know what i mean like you're going to have profound statements throughout this thing but no one's going to change their behavior as a result of them this is just mm-hmm. the way it is
1: well i, I mean, mean but certain right. characters change their behavior like it's just the central characters perhaps i mean
2: sure
0: yeah russell's very open at almost preachy at some point yes, yes.
2: increasingly so i yes. found i thought the first issue was the subtlest
0: and like that yeah the marriage there, there are very clear done. messages yeah. yeah and
2: they're not bad when he's not subtle like he finds nuances yep. like I, I still enjoyed it i just thought it was interesting to see that um shift
0: does farce work for transformers versus gi
1: <laughs> i don't think so i think
0: it's a loving truth <laughs> well it does have that like not weightlessness but a sense of like don't really worry too much about the consequences
1: yeah i mean yeah i see that i guess it's just that like farce to me has like an element of like it sounds like it's like making fun of it and i just think that that implies a negativity that's not Mm. present because i just don't see that being present this isn't i mean i can see elements of that Like, the violence is so excessive and people are just dying, being cut down, and they just continue and, like, I don't know, it makes you upset at points, which, like, I I feel like is, like, something, but at the same time, it also
0: just continues. One of the darker visual uh, gags, question mark, uh, when they introduce characters and then, like, have the that die immediately and they're bullets through their name tags so we never get to see who they are
1: oh yeah yeah so I mean, there's little things like that I don't, yeah farce I don't know I don't know if I'd go there for that but
0: I don't know if I have a firm grasp of what I want farce to mean either but there's something in the element of like just so many like one sentence descriptors to me that farce is that like if you can go listen to this one note ludicrous thing and just list off a ream of things i don't know if that is farce exactly it is something more than just comedy uh like, yeah
2: like, like we could argue it's a farce of war well, that we're seeing, yeah. right I, I think that works
1: but i don't think it's a farce of gi joe transformers mm-hmm.
2: no because it loves them right yeah. yes
0: when uh, you two were presenting the case to not have to read all 13 issues. Yeah, uh, as grew, as I, I made a passionate yeah. plea involving just a list of the nonsense stuff that happens in volume two. Your list was
1: good, it intrigued me, but at the same time I was like, well it took me two hours to get through four issues, so I just uh, the body is willing, but <laughs> the time is just not there.
0: I guess a related question here would be, what does the distinction matter? And the comparison with farce is wherever it would land, in terms of, at least in relevance to this work, I think it matters where it fits in terms of satire. Do you think that either of these two works are satirical works?
2: I think this I would call satirical.
0: Yeah, I definitely, would call yeah. it satirical.
2: But yeah, I think it has a lot on its mind, and I think yeah. it's really I using humor to make a other. little.
0: It's an easier, it's a relatively easy case to make for satire in this. Yeah, you know, Flintstones
1: one. Although even then, I mean, you know, is it is it a juvenile satire? <laughs> or, or a
0: Horatian satire? I mean, I think that depends on how much you like vacuum cleaner.
1: Yeah. I
2: do like vacuum cleaner, that one hurt
1: me. Yeah, I know, yeah. That, that was one of the, so there's the, I brought it up in the intro, but vacuum cleaner is this like adorable pink elephant who has to live in the closet and there's just like a heartbreaking scene with him and Bowling Ball, who's the armadillo who has to be a bowling ball. And then they're like, how do we like manage to like live this existence? Like we're just used as objects. And then vacuum cleaner has this little speech about, you know what keeps me going, bowling ball, and I'm locked in the closet all day? I just think about my dear friend bowling ball on the other side of the door and how I'll see him again soon. And it's just like heartbreaking.
0: <laughs> like, oh stop my emotions. Well, before we tear up, um it's, yeah, and does, versus transformers yeah, the is not gonna is do that. <laughs>
2: Is it a satire? I don't think so. I think um,
0: I, I would make the argument that it gets there in vol- in the next volume.
2: Okay, which I haven't read. Yeah, so uh, I have to concede the point. Um, for me, GI Joe versus Transformers. I don't. I spoke to this in the intro. I don't think it has a lot of thoughts in its head, and I don't think it wants to. And I think that's okay. It's it's providing a again kind of a visceral experience
1: on you know like what we're assuming one gets out of these texts because i mean mm-hmm. if you're going to be like there's artists who design these things and the design of the transformers and the gi joe mm-hmm. world and stuff is like very vibrant and interesting and yeah. if you're going to embrace that as a value of these things and embrace it in the exaggerated way that this comic does then that has value and it's okay to like that i mean you're 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 picking things from the thing that weren't necessarily supposed to be the thing that you were actually supposed to be the most focused on and then pulling them apart and celebrating them. And in that sense, it's kind of like a rejigging. But again, it's still celebratory. It's just, it's a looking at it from a slightly different angle rather than a like, you know, a rewriting. I don't know if that makes any sense.
2: I think it does. I think it works with um, Shioli's imitation of Kirby, which, yeah. is, which is very well documented. Because I think yeah. one of the reasons we, we undersold Kirby for so long yeah. was because we were... Um, privileging the sort of textual, character-based elements yeah. over all those design elements that you mentioned, mm-hmm. that he was just unbelievably good at, maybe the best ever at. So I, I think even that choice of using Shioli in that particular style references that appreciation for the kind of excess spectacle that he's creating.
1: I have a whole article on the pow- called "The Power of the Marvelous Image" on the value of excess in superhero <laughs> comics and how it's more complex than we give it mm-hmm. credit for. That makes that exact argument. Nice.
0: Next question is uh, moving towards vast overreading, uh, but both of these works are heavily about humanity being opposed or at least contrasted with another type of being, whether it's the tools and the aliens in Flintstones or the G.I. Joes and the Transformers. How do these comics make use of it, that contrast? Uh, is there a question here of what it means to be human or to our what is our relationship to the tools around us
2: i'm going to say a hundred percent yes in Flintstones, <laughs> which we'll probably talk about more and then really quickly say in transformers versus g i Joe, no i I think specifically humanity is um offset in its power set in a way to make them equivalent of transformers because they are holding their own against the robots in a way that should not be. Hmm. Oh, well, well, I, think
0: I think it's interesting in the zeroth issue that there's a transformer fight going on the whole time, and they don't notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because but I mean, they think it's just oh, this is just another Cobra machine.
2: Yeah.
1: The mechanization and disposability of the human characters, though, is certainly emphasized. Right. I mean, you
0: know, like they're just getting like. <laughs> and there's an irony almost built into the GI Joes that the conception behind them is this is an army of independent people where everyone has their own unique skill all happy also to collect die all, yeah. collect all the toys but, you have them all
1: but then like a transformer like scoops them all up in its hand and just swallows them whole mm. so yeah. like i mean that's definitely right. present and i mean yeah i mean there is a kind of a terror that ends up coming across just with the like that happening again and again and again you know you get introduced, like, a whole page of, like, new characters with their, like, little description of who they are, like, you know, their weapon, their mustache, their coding. Um and then on the very next page, they're all killed. So, and you brought that up earlier. I think, too, Michael, but, I mean, that seems to be some sort of commentary on sort of, like, the object nature of these people, and, I mean, again, if you're going to read this as a farce of war, you could certainly read that back into it.
2: Yeah, and I'm already changing my mind now because you guys have been talking. But um, uh, I, I would say we see that the other way as well. In that scene where um, the G.I. Joes are taking apart Shockwave, I think it is, uh-huh. uh, and again can't conceive that this is a sentient, conscious being who we shouldn't be it,
0: doing I this to. I hope you're not it. a yeah. bumblebee fan because yeah, yeah. something's happen to his body. Yeah,
1: Ruffstar. well, he gets turned into like what that flying motorcycle yeah. that like. Uh...
0: Okay, that's the G.I. Joe side of things. Let's yeah, shift it. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk uh, the Flintstones. It portrays, on the one side you have all these human characters, on the other side you have a little bit the alien side of things, but also, but more importantly I think, the uh, wide array of animal, tool, slave characters.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, so to, to clarify, if people are confused, there is like a an issue where aliens visit the planet and go on spring break and like indiscriminately kill people. And then you get the great kazoo introduced at the end as like a gamekeeper that will keep this from happening again. You get these kind of continuity expl- explanations, which yeah. is like, uh, I don't know, I don't know, your mileage on that will vary. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what specific, I mean... The themes of sort of class and exploitation were sort of constant throughout the comic, and I saw the animal stuff as an as an extension of that. I didn't see it necessarily as like an animal rights argument so much as they are the most disposable laborers within this world, and that's sort of how I read it. I mean, you can certainly make
0: the case that it's how we treat real animals too, but um, yeah, it's not or nice.
2: sure. working class. Yes.
0: Um, and I mean I saw them didn't... more
1: because the animals can talk and they're Yeah, human. I saw them more as stand-ins for humans than like stand-ins yeah. for animals.
0: Although there is like a real um is this going too far moment when the other animals refer to uh the pet Dino as Uncle Dino.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, again, I feel that like your mileage on that kind of reference yeah. will, will vary. But I mean the point being made is that they consider him to be that he's betrayed them by, like, you know. But I mean, it's, yeah, that, that is an interesting sort of class commentary moment because the other animal object machines, whatever, are not rebelling against the humans. They just yeah. they consider a dino. Well, it's yeah, it's bad it's, because he's befriending them, but they're not rebelling either. It is that kind of like you know, you're so diminished by your class status that like that's
0: not even possible. Rebelling is not even possible. Hmm. Yeah, it's a weird play on our sympathies that we are very much into the bowling ball, uh, vacuum cleaner leader, vacuum cleaner relationship, but the way that ends is tragic. Yeah, there's and no yet we're not, not supposed to. It is not supposed to turn us against the human characters. Like there is no emotional resolution there.
2: Right. What about um, Bam Bam?
0: It is used well in the issue, where like, what does it mean to? when a politician does a bunch of rabble-rousing just to win popularity? And, like, what is the tragedy that a war leaves behind? But beyond that issue, it's not really dealt with very much, that he is other in a way that, yeah, that in a way that is arguably more visible in the original cartoon, where he was much more commonly strong-handing things.
2: Yeah, I I mean, it's framed almost miraculously, the idea being that, um, um, wow, not Fred, Barney and... Barney's wife, whose name I forget, uh, are unable to, Betty, thank you so much, uh, are unable to have a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, somewhat miraculously, um, Barney happens upon this infant in the middle of a genocide that he's helped perpetuate.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting retelling of his origins, since yeah. the original Bam Bam was bestowed upon them after they made a wish on a shooting star.
1: Yeah, when I was reading the Wikipedia for Flintstones, it's indicated he was adopted, but it did not yeah. mention that. <laughs>
0: I don't know how I remember that. (laughs) That's
1: funny. Yeah. What I find often in my memories of certain cartoons growing up is that because they were never shown in order or whatever, and it's probably because stations only own so Mm. many of them, too, that you would end up seeing the same one like 10 times. Like, I've seen the same episode of Flintstones like 10 times, but I've only seen three episodes. (laughs) So maybe it stuck with you because of that. I mean, yeah, I don't don't know. I don't have any really thoughts about the Bam Bam thing. I thought the war stuff was some of the stronger stuff in the comic. I mean, it's heavy-handed. Like, a lot of the satire is very heavy-handed in this comic, and yet it's effective, though, too. I mean, sometimes you need heavy-handedness to get kind of the point across. And, I mean, what I'm saying in the intro, I think it does a good job of, you know, making these characters sympathetic to such a degree that even the act of genocide becomes at least somewhat complicated, even though it's still not sympathetic. Although you could pick that apart in the sense that, like, Fred and Barney are still considered sympathetic after the genocide, but it's because they're situated within it as, like, they were bound up in like ideals of masculinity, and were trying to prove something, and like that's maybe not their fault, and they're also an underclass and being exploited. So I mean, and they
0: are like suffering for it in yeah. a sense.
1: Of, yeah, yeah, I guess they're suffering is like how they're paying. In the price I, of I
2: think that's one of the, the nicer themes that I think comes out of it is this idea that the the individual is um, a tool of the institution, yeah. and the violence symbolically think, of that like the, the note that
0: really rang untrue in the entire series as a whole is the. Kind of redemption of the boss figure.
2: Yeah.
1: You, does he get rede- redeemed?
0: Um, To the extent that I think at the by the end he's like presented as a sympathetic. Like, look, he also got. There's always going to be someone richer, so he learned a lesson.
1: Oh yeah, I guess so.
2: Nobody's happy.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I did find, like, the class critique stuff to be pretty effective in the comic. I mean, it's something we certainly don't see enough of, like, in general in popular culture. And I'm hoping that, you know, I mean, again, sometimes that stuff does need to be heavy-handed because these aren't things that people talk about enough.
2: Mm. And weird, coming back to our earlier discussion, that Flintstones is the vehicle yeah. through which that can be conducted.
1: But you know, again, like that's one of those things where it can be that much more effective because it is this familiar thing that, you know, like that helps with the identification with the text as well. And then doing these gestures of estrangement that, you know, have kind of a purpose and like a planning and aren't just for shock, right?
2: Right. And,
0: Let's ask a very important, serious question. Which character or set of characters of Transformers and G.I. Joes was your favorite?
2: Um, for purely nostalgic reasons, Snake Eyes, because I know he's going to be a good guy after all. <laughs> that was you, you can't story. convince me otherwise, no matter how hard they try. I
1: mean, who's the girl, Scarlet? Oh, yeah, Scarlet. Yeah, I mean, she's just such a, like, unrepentant, like, just a horrible person. You just won't let anybody have like a moment's rest. I mean, who had memorable bits who's the like the guy in the fringe jacket I feel like it's like Tex or something but yeah, is it Tex? I mean I was just guessing yeah. um, <laughs> it's some name like that Wild so, Bill, like, yeah, yeah. Bill. Yeah. yeah he's got a good he, there's a wonderful thing with him where he jumps out of the plane or something and you just get like the panel of like his fringe has gone like up in the air <laughs> and like it takes you a moment to figure out what that's depicting but it's like his fringe because he's falling so I thought that was really well done It was a memorable moment for me I don't
0: don't really know who Destro is But I do like his introduction Oh, he got a badass (laughs) introduction
1: I was like all on board with that I was like, holy shit, this guy is a heavy And he just came in here and He got a really badass introduction
0: I, mean, uh, I have a weird fondness for General Flagg, even though he's clearly an asshole. Yeah,
1: well I mean that but, made me think of the character for Adventure Brothers yeah. a lot too. Uh,
0: aesthetically speaking though, I think my favorite group just because they're so weird, is the October Guard.
1: Yes! Oh this my god! Russian
0: Halloween theme? Yes! Mm-hmm. Is that
1: like a real thing? I think so. Oh my god. Yeah, it's And like, movie. what was... One of them was just like...
0: And they're posed like as going up against the animal G.I. Joe crew. Yes!
1: That was insane. That was really insane. <laughs> like, what were some of the names that were... Like, Horror Show is one of them. If I'd known about... The dinosaur transformers growing up, nothing would have stopped me from consuming that. That was a serious
2: Grimlock was was up there for me. His weird yeah, way Grimlock of talking.
1: Yeah, Grimlock gets a lot of <laughs> real badass moments.
2: I do love all the
0: just all the like this trend This city is also a transformer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: the scale kept blowing up to absurd proportions. Oh,
0: it it, it has not finished. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean it becomes kind of profound at some point where they're just like going inside of other robots and finding entire new cities and like things are either getting dramatically smaller or bigger and you're like not sure what the size or scope of this world no. is at all anymore.
2: Which is weirdly the complaint against Michael Bay's style of directing the Transformers, <laughs> that he doesn't give you a sense of what's happening. But I
1: mean you could like a way because like again the thing that I do love about the Transformers movies is the CGI of the Transformers it's breathtaking Mm -hmm. and I'm just like could they not make a movie that just embraced the excess of that and didn't have like a Megan Fox and Shia LaBeouf like running around because that's the part of the movie that you hate I just want to see the Transformers doing cool shit
0: all right since we've transitioned into the kind of (laughs) artistry uh, let's talk about very quickly uh, art and these two comics We've talked a little bit about Sholi and the Kirby influences. Mm -hmm. Other notable things in these works?
2: I've mentioned it before, but there's a little bit of um, rough wave aesthetic uh, in comics, which is like the super cluttered Mm. kind of um, a little bit ugly style. And and, and, like you look at the way the characters' faces are constructed in G.I. Joe especially. um, I think it conforms a bit to that. It, It creates a sense of anxiety, which I think is well suited to the the, the battle conflict that we're depicting other than that i, I land on as mm-hmm. being the main sort of stylistic I,
0: I don't know what the stylistic origin is for this but i do love the way they kept doing those like multi-action scene splash pages mm-hmm. like a splash page with five or six different fights going on yeah. and like dozens of characters yeah well i mean
1: just like the like I thought it spoke really well to comics' ability to kind of really do excess because mm-hmm. I always try to teach this in my comics and superheroes classes, and I like, I feel like I never really communicated it effectively because you just you really have to read a lot of comics to really get it, but it's just that. Com- what often frustrates me about like live action adaptations of comics is that they don't have that same level of excess because it's the excess that often excites me the most about I mean, that's why superhero comics are usually my favorite comics and I like don't like you know indie realistic comics as much. But I mean like your ability to have a fight scene that's got fifteen fight scenes going on at the same time. It's like that's a fight scene. Like, I want that fight scene. I mean, God, like a movie is so boring by comparison. It's just like a linear narrative fight scene and I just, one move leads to another move. It's like, no, why not have five punches going on at the same time? Why not have 10 punches? Why not have 15 punches? Why not have like, you know, as many things as you can fit on a page? I mean, the thing that I really liked about the, sorry, how do you pronounce it? Shioli.
2: Scioli.
1: Um That like, it had that, I mean, I go back to your comment about it sort of like being doodles on a binder or something. I mean, the way it looks like it's colored with pencil crayon, and yeah. the, the line work is kind of like marker.
2: I think the papers are actually um, um, browned, too. Yeah or uh, what's it called, distressed?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: in, in order to make it look kind of amateurish. Like yeah, you look yeah, closely, yeah, yeah. In some places you can see it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing preview pages from that too, and that like really stood out to me when I first saw the pages from that. And I think that's like absolutely an
0: effective design for like, communicating. It's kind of a very uh, shareable factor of these two, and I am dearly disappointed in the internet that these are not just in regular circulation, some of the single you know, panels Oh, from the series, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a weirdly highbrow series, though. You yeah. know, like I mean, I could see it being really alienating to a lot of people. Like, if you read it and you're just like, I don't I, understand the story. I mean, you're gonna be I, mad. I think we,
0: we all we are all in the mm-hmm. place of like we could not give a full account of this story. No, no, but I mean, you <laughs> and, have to
1: read it and not care about that. Yes, like, which is a lot. And if you're does, not willing yeah. to do that, then and I mean, even a lot of the action scenes are like. I mean, I stopped at some of the pages and like trying to I mean one of my complaints is that I wish that I would read this on paper instead of on mm. my computer because I there was so much to unpack and just in terms of like wait this robot flipped inside out now and it's hard to like <laughs> figure out how we got from one panel to the next and I found that a bit difficult but depending on like what you enjoy that
0: could be exciting as well what about the Flintstones side it's beautiful I think it's it's an interesting design for the characters because there's clearly some influence from the live-action film involved yeah that's but true. also of a, a very clear decision to not go with the body type of John Goodman.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it makes the the style of the world more realistic for sure, which I mean works with that sort of humanizing of the characters that we see going It makes on. the
0: juxtaposition of the comedy uh, striking too, that yeah. it's less cartoonish than the original, yet yeah. more exaggerated almost in places. Mm.
2: Mm. I think there's a lot of good mood work, too.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, And I guess maybe more credit to, like, the coloring team, but, um, yeah, I I think there's a lot of, like, like, sort of visual expressionism coming out through the color palettes that are being chosen.
1: Mm, That's interesting. Can you think of, like, an example?
2: The closet scene.
1: Oh, okay, Mm. yeah. Would be a good one for me. Well, I mean, even the choice to make a vacuum cleaner, like that pink elephant specifically, Mm. is an interesting one. I mean, you know, it makes you think of Dumbo.
2: I love that the
0: character model for The Great Gazoo is based on Judge Dredd.
2: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. That's a, does some, does, you've read the whole volume, yeah. right? But like, does something happen with the Gazoo character? Uh, there's more with him, yeah. Though. Okay. I might, I might read that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't commit to reading the rest of it. I don't know why I'm lying. <laughs> but I enjoyed the six issues I read.
0: First, a uh, word of apology. Sorry. Uh, Because of technical difficulty, I left my notes at home. This review was not recorded along with the original podcast, which means that it is happening uh, post-coronavirus social distancing, and you get to hear the sound technology of my home laptop rather than the uh, effort and skill that my co-host Andrew typically puts into it. Uh, I will send the file off hoping for the best, and... uh, uh, good luck, Andrew. <laughs> All right, here we go. Jonathan Gray's *Shows Sold Separately, Promos, Spoilers, and Other Media Paratexts is, as the subtitle suggests, a book about paratext. Literary theorist Gerard Jeannette defined paratext as the zone of transition and transaction that functions as threshold between text and non-text, that which is near the text, but not necessarily considered part of a text yet still influencing its ultimate reception. Jeanette further divides paratext into peri-text, peri as in perimeter, paratext that was bound within the text, such as chapter titles or afterwords, and epitext, which is paratext that is outside the texts, like an interview. Despite the clarification, he focuses almost entirely on paratext and on the novel, whereas Gray's book can be considered as a rehabilitation of the value of paratext as epitext in the age of the transmedia popular culture franchise. To further this exploration, the book is divided into six chapters, each focusing on a particular aspect of media paratext and a particular set of media. Chapter one introduces his terminology as Grey makes his own paratext division. He separates out in media res paratexts that reinforce a viewer's sense of the text they are familiar with, from entry paratexts, which attempt to control how the reader enters a text, where the next chapter studies entry paratexts with an examination of movie posters and a particular focus on the prom- promotion campaign of ABC's Six Degrees and the differing trailers of The Sweet Hereafter, as well as a brief look into the television intros of The Simpsons and Dexter. Comic book readers are, of course, familiar with entryway paratexts in the form of the cover, a paratext that is supposedly there to attract you to the contents of the comic, despite often showing a different scene by a different artist entirely. Chapter 3 investigates bonus materials and the aura of the authorial intention added by elements such as cast interviews and DVD extras, as illustrated by the collector's edition of The Lord of the Rings and Joss Whedon's prominent role as showrunner for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Chapter 4 examines the influence of the original as paratext for interpretation of sequels and adaptations, with case studies including Tolkien fan reaction to Lord of the Rings films before they were released, and The Long Shadow the films cast over other films such as King Kong and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, before moving on to the distancing Batman Begins had to perform from the previous film, and the esteem J.J. Abrams lent to post-alias TV projects. Chapter 5 turns things over to the fans, with viewer-created paratexts. This includes a surveys of those who sought out lost spoilers, and the role of the TV critic in framing the reception of Friday Night Lights. Finally, the last chapter explores those who want to play with their texts, with an examination of Star Wars action figures, augmented reality gaming advertisements, and video game spin-offs. I hope that Gray's relevance to this month's comics is fairly evident. Here we have two sets of readings that aren't just paratexts, but transmedia paratexts, which carry their respective properties far away from the original media forms. They are admittedly strange paratexts, in the sense that they don't appear to be guiding readers to any main text at all. It's hard to imagine the reader who will encounter these in comics, then immediately go searching for the latest G.I. Joe or Transformer series, or jump back to the 1960s Hanna-Barbera Flintstones cartoon. However, as Gray reminds us, paratext doesn't have to be a clear originator text or any text at all other than the one produced in the reader's mind when they read. We never see Professor Sargon in cartoon form or the G.I. Joe invasion of Cybertron on the big screen. By reading these comic book paratexts, our conception of the franchise is nevertheless altered and it's the alteration that is key to the paratext. As for the book's use in teaching contemporary comic related material, I um, have to hesitate a bit. Gray's embrace of pop culture of the day is a big strength of the book, but it also means his examples are rather dated in 2020. as indicated by the total lack of engagement with comic books at all uh, since it happened just before the age of the superhero really got in film really got underway. It illustrates perhaps how thoroughly the media landscape has been altered by them in the past 10 years. the paratexts. They are a-changing. Okay, Uh, I think we have successfully explained how transmedia and adaptation works in all its permutations. (laughs) Um, We'll never have to have this conversation (laughs) again. Let's do our recommendations. I'm going to base mine here on uh, this adaptation of my own that I've come across recently. Uh, the graphic novel Wet Hot American Summer, which is an adaptation, or a spin-off, rather, of the TV series, question mark? Movie, question mark? what other, other media compilations, uh, specifically by Christopher Hastings and Noah Hayes from Boom Studios. It's, a t- it's admittedly a little jarring going in that so much of those characters are bound up in the actors and the dynamics they have with each other. But by the end of it, it just sort of clicked with me and I appreciated translating them into that medium.
1: I mentioned it earlier in the pod. I am going to recommend uh, Mark Russell's, another of Mark Russell's Hanna-Barbera series, which is the Snagglepuss Chronicles, and it's got art by Mike, F- sorry, it's Mike Feehan, I believe. Um, so, it's basically Snagglepuss's Tennessee Williams um, within the context of McCarthyism. Like, he has to go before, like, a House of Un American Activities Commission and defend his lifestyle and whatnot. Um, anyway, it's um, a story that kind of intersects with the history of gay rights. Stonewall Inn features prominently. His best friend, Huckleberry Hound, is. Also a novelist who gets beaten up by his police cop horse boyfriend, um, so animals and humans interact in this world, seamlessly as they do in these types of cartoons, um, and that's not really a factor in the story, which is an interesting choice, but... Um, Well, actually, why am I giving away all the plot points anyway? uh, So uh, it's an interesting series that, you know, does something very radically different with the characters. Um, I don't know that I actually personally loved it, but it was interesting. So I will recommend it on that level. Um, And it did win a GLAAD Award in 2019 for Outstanding Comic Book.
2: Uh, I'm going to recommend Wonder Woman Conan crossover. Uh, by Gail Simone and Aaron Lepestri. Um, The reason I really, really like this is I think these sort of um, intersecting franchise stories often fail to sort of find a common level by which both characters can be represented fairly. Uh, I really love this one in terms of what pairing Conan with someone of Wonder Woman's grace and dignity and um, um, agency. Uh, And at the same time, I really love what happens when you take Wonder Woman and you put her into a grim and gritty world uh, that sometimes um, is not what she gets uh, in the mainstream DC universe. In, in both cases, I thought it was um, revelatory for the two characters combined and makes for kind of a, a really fun franchise.
0: Yeah, I, I also read that series and but if nothing else, it is uh, one of the last times you'll see Conan teaming up with the DC character for a while. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We would like to also give thanks to St. Jerome's for the use of their space. At the next time, we will be looking at some more comedic side of superheroes with Keith Giffen, Keith Giffen, J. M. DeMatteis, and Kevin Maguire's Justice League International Volume One, and Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber's The Superior Foes of Spider-Man Volume One.